Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, there is uh, there is nothing better than getting to get together, to dive into scripture, to study what you have for us. And Father, I just pray that we would glean much from our time tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would be revealing yourself, that you would be revealing your glorious purposes, that you would be building us up in our faith, that you would be causing us to be more firmly grounded, more deeply rooted, and uh, just more convinced of your accomplishment of your plan and your purposes, Lord God, that you will accomplish all that you set out to do. So Lord, I just pray that you would be with us tonight. Give us all hearts and minds to receive your word. Please be with me as I seek to bring it forth accurately and ask Lord that in all of it, you would be glorified in Jesus name. Amen. 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 So first, I guess just real quick, briefly, um, just kind of catch us up to speed on what we covered in the fall. Um, in the fall, we talked about how God uses covenants to establish kingdoms, to delegate dominion, ultimately for his purpose of bringing about the rest and the consummation of all creation in a state of glory. That's God's grand plan, and he accomplishes it through various covenants. And the Bible, the word of God, is the history of God achieving that plan. And so he's done this through three distinct kingdoms that we've begun to talk about, the kingdom of creation, kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God. What's up, my dear? How's it going? Come on in. Find a seat. What's up, Leo? Um, we got outlines and also just like a vocabulary reference page if you need it. No problem. Um, so we have the three distinct kingdoms. Um, in the last, back in the fall, we talked about the kingdom of creation, how through the covenant of life that God made with Adam, um, God held out to Adam and to all of those who were under his headship, all of his offspring, the uh, the hope of reward of the consummate kingdom, the glory that creation was destined for by Adam serving faithfully as a prophet, priest, and king. We talked about that, and we talked about how Adam, of course, failed in that, brought all of creation, all of his offspring, all those under his headship, under the curse of the covenant. And so you know, now we are all under that curse, but then we talked about how through the flood judgment and through God's covenant with Noah, he has, um, he has provided for the stability and security of the earth um, until he brings up the consummation. Hey, guys! Hey. Welcome, welcome! Hello! Hello! Here, Nathan. You take this chair. Here. You guys want to sit over here? I'll grab this chair. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Yes, you mean yes. <laughs> yeah, that was what it said. She has back in. That's okay. Nathan, I need your Bible. You're back here with me. Oh. Andy, you can take the. That's okay. It's still soft, Nathan. Andy, take the good chair. We're playing musical chairs. We're playing musical <laughs> you take this. Let's put this back here. Yeah, since you're all messed up too, Randy. Exactly. Oh, a little bit. A little bit. It's all right. That's why I take this chair. It's too modern. All right. All right. All right. Perfect. Glad to see you guys here. Yeah, I got lost. Oh, well, it's been a while and it's dark, so we can let it slide. Um, somebody want to, Dom, do you want to hand them outlines since you're up? Thanks. All right, so we're still just reviewing. God established his covenant with Noah, and through that covenant, God ensures uh, the preservation of the kingdom of creation until his purposes are fulfilled and the consummation is brought about. Um, so after the covenant with Noah, God focuses on Abraham and his family, establishes the kingdom of Israel 
through the Abrahamic covenant. That's where it's rooted, where God makes certain promises to Abraham that he guarantees by grace. God promises him offspring, the land of Canaan, kings. He promises Abraham his special presence. And he promises ultimately a blessing to the nations that will come through Abraham there's the grace element where those promises are guaranteed, but then remember we also talked about the works elements of that, that corporately Abraham's offspring is guaranteed this covenant inheritance, but individually to enjoy those blessings, there had to be obedience to the law, beginning with circumcision. Then when Israel becomes a nation under Moses, that law is um, brought to its fullness. And also with Moses, there's a sacrificial system so that there is a means when the law is broken, people can remain in the covenant through blood atonement in the sacrificial system. They can continue to enjoy the blessings. So that's catching us up to speed. And all of these, remember, are constantly types and shadows that point forward, that anticipate a new and a better covenant, um, looking forward to the kingdom and the covenant of Christ. So, like I said, that's where we are to this point. Um, for this spring, so we've, you know, we've come through Adam, Abraham, Moses. We're going to cover the consummation of the Old Covenant, uh, looking forward, just kind of a sketch of where we're going. The consummation of the Old Covenant under David and the kingship that brings about the, the king, the temple, and the rest for the kingdom of Israel, but then the failures of the kings of Israel and the further unfolding of the mystery of Christ in the failures of the kings and as the prophets began to speak more clearly about uh, the new covenant and the new Davidic king who was going to come. And then we'll, of course, look at the unveiling of the new covenant in the person and work of Christ and the advent of the kingdom of Christ. So that's where we're going. Um, tonight, we're gonna, tonight's going to be like a prologue to the Davidic covenant. We're going to talk about everything leading up to it. And basically, we're going to try to cover like three books of the Bible in one night tonight. Wow. <laughs> very, very ambitious. But, you know, we're, this isn't a systematic study. We're just laying the groundwork for, you know, setting the context for when David shows up, because you can't just jump straight from Moses to David. There's a lot that happens in between. Um, as always, feel free to stop me. Feel free to ask questions. Feel free to comment. Um, if I start to move a little bit too fast, let me know, and hopefully we can all benefit from this. So turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. That's where we're going to start tonight. And just keep your Bibles open. We're going to be flipping through Judges and 1 Samuel and all of that. But we'll start in Deuteronomy 17. And Deuteronomy is the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for? Re not the restoration, but the, it's the renewal. It's the renewal of the covenant. Deuteronomy is a covenantal book that outlines God's promises, Israel's obligations. And right in the middle of it, you have this section regarding kings. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor should he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself... In a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, as I mentioned, right in the middle of this you know, covenant renewal with Moses and in the Mosaic Law, you have this provision for kings being made. And so when Israel was consummated or consecrated, I guess I should say, as a nation under Moses, remember, before the Exodus and Moses, Abraham's family, the Hebrews, they were a people, but they were dwelling in the land of Egypt. They didn't have their own laws and their own government. It wasn't until the Exodus that the law became necessary to govern them as a nation. And so in the law, you have the provision made and the regulations surrounding kings, but there's no appointment of a king in the law. But it's clear that under the Mosaic Covenant and in the law, the expectation is that Israel is going to have a king. And that's important for us to understand, because when we get to 1 Samuel and the appointment of King Saul, it almost it, it can seem as though the people were in rebellion because of the fact that they wanted a king. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. That's not exactly the case because right here in the law, it's we're told kings were the expectation. It was God's purpose that he would gather all of his people <coughs> together under one national covenant head in the person of the king. And so we're, it's laid out. The, uh, the responsibilities and the obligations of the king. And, you know, we're told that the king he is to defend the people, but not in a way in which he relies on um, the, the world strength, where it says he can't acquire for himself many horses or go down to Egypt to get many horses, <laughs> that the king is to be reliant on God, doing God's will, and according to God's way, protecting and defending the people, and not being so enlarged so as to be able to quickly and easily turn on the people by acquiring many horses for himself. There's also the mention of not acquiring many wives for himself, that the kings were to live as models of God's law. In fact, that they had to, as we read in there, had to write out a copy of the law that would be approved of by the priests in order that, as it says, he may learn to fear the Lord his God. He would obey the commandments. So the kings were meant to be a model for the law, and they weren't to indulge in the excesses that would come with, you know, the temptations to excess that would come with being kings. They're not to acquire excessive silver or gold. They're not to live this lavish lifestyle or think much of themselves, but they were to essentially be the representation of God to the people. God, his law, his word ruled over all the people, and the king was the representative of God to the people who was to rule justly, who was to rule um, faithfully and modestly on God's behalf. What do you have, Don? I'm not sure of the context and everything. I just was curious. Does this explanation of a king, um, would that express some general equity for us today and how our rulers should rule? Um, I think that there is a lot of wisdom from the scripture for us to take as far as how we ought to rule. And of course... You know, with the reality of Christ's resurrection and ascension and reigning with all authority over all people, um, yes, all rulers are ideally to be under the law of God and ruling in accord with the law of God, representatives of God and his justice and his wrath and his goodness to the people whom they represent. So I do think this has some bearing on it, especially given the reality of what happens with the uh, incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's, you know, that, that is, you know, brings it all into sharper focus. But yeah, I think there's relevance. Yeah, with general equity and so mm -hmm. But this is the distinct calling of God upon this nation of Israel, where these kings are representing Christ as king of, this is the theocracy. Yeah. And that's why they couldn't rely. They were totally relying on the Lord. And I just want to comment on, Verse 18, where they had to write that law down. They had to know that that full reliance on the Lord and the law of God 
understanding that, having that written down for themselves. So it wasn't just the kings as intermediaries that, or the uh, priests. The kings also had to yes. make sure that they were fully understanding of, of God's law. And that is a beautiful picture, like of Christ, obviously, later. Yeah, and the next this verse, is the, the second part of the verse, so they have to read in it daily as well. Yeah. Yep. And so, absolutely, the king was to be immersed in the law of God. It'd be nice if our judges would be like that today, right? Or right, and that's and that is something that you know you ought to strive because, again, the purpose of that is the recognition that God is the supreme king overall, that He is the ruler, um, and so he the the king was to be an example yes. of godliness. He was to be the one who would execute God's justice. And he would do this by knowing and obeying the law of God. And again, just that, that line as well, that he's not to be lifted up above his brothers, that he was to be humble and recognize that essentially, positionally, he's no different before God than any other Israelite. But he has the obligation and responsibility to live out as the covenant head the, the law as an example to the people. So the... What I basically want us to get is that the provisions for the kingship are right there in the law. To have a king was not an unrighteous thing. It wasn't a lawless thing. The people had God's permission to appoint a king. We're told in verse 14, when you dwell in this land and say, I'll set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. But what's the provision there? whom the Lord your God will choose. And so, yes, they were allowed to appoint a king, but it had to be God's king. It had to be one who was set apart by God, who imaged God, who ruled on behalf of God and in accord with God's law. And you have the anticipation of the king in Israel. It really does call back to Adam in the garden. Because what do you have with Adam? You have God creating man in his image, giving him dominion, calling him to exercise that dominion on his behalf, according to his word, and to bring about rest, consummation, and peace. In the situation with Israel, you have God who would choose the king, one who was going to properly image him. And, you know, as we'll get to with David, he was a man after God's own heart. You have uh, him being appointed with, uh, with a level of dominion over the people of Israel to rule on God's behalf and to bring that kingdom to its consummation, to its rest in the land that God had set apart for them. And so you have this... Um, you know, kind of hearkening back to the initial rule of Adam in the garden, and then obviously looking forward to the true, final, perfect king in Christ Jesus, who's the embodiment of the law and who brings about the rest and the consummation of all creation. Um, and so, again, important to know and for us to take note that the king, the throne in Israel, was not an adjustment. It's not God reacting to the people. It's not God changing his plans for Israel. But the king, the throne, was always the plan for God. Does that make sense? Do we see that? All right. So, again, the king, though, is not appointed in the law. So we're given laws for kings, but we're not actually told who the king is going to be. We're not given any sort of mechanism for selecting the king within the law. And part of that, like we talked about with the actual giving of the law, is that the people of Israel became a nation over the course of time. And so in Egypt, obviously, there was no opportunity, no necessity for Israel, for the Hebrews to have a king. And even now, when Moses is giving the law in the wilderness, there's no, you know, there's no land for him to rule over. And even when Joshua then leads the people into the land, they're conquering it and they're under the leadership of Joshua, but they're not established as a kingdom per se at that time. So Moses, before entering the land, is obviously the leader of Israel. He serves as kind of the chief judge. Because you remember um, earlier in Exodus, when Moses' father-in-law tells him to appoint these 70 men, heads over the tribes of, of Israel, 
as judges to assist him. But Moses was the chief judge, right? He was the one who would actually go before the Lord and would get revelation from God and who would ultimately sit in the seat of judgment over Israel in the tent of meeting. And so you have Moses serving as that in that role. And then explicitly, Joshua is appointed to succeed Moses as the chief judge over Israel when they enter into the land and begin the conquest. So we have Moses and we have Joshua. But then after Joshua, there's no clear successor who's named. There's no, uh, you know, nobody's indicated as going to be the next leader of Israel. But rather what we have at the end of Joshua's ministry is kind of this principle that comes up, this pattern of authority. We know Joshua's famous lines at the end of his ministry, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what you have there is kind of setting a pattern as opposed to a national, unified uh, leader, you know, nation of Israel under one covenant head. You have Joshua kind of setting the pattern for families and tribes to be led under the headship of, you know, fathers and the and the tribal leaders. And so Joshua says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's calling the other heads of households and heads of tribes to do the same in serving the Lord. But they're not getting the national unified leader who would be over all the people. And so it was individual families, tribes, elders. They were to walk in obedience and so together be this nation conformed to the law of God. Does that make sense? That we kind of see that developing with Joshua or after Joshua, I guess it's, I guess I should say. But the, um, so the particular kind of federal headship responsibility to lead in obedience fell on tribal elders, fathers, families. That was, uh, you know, the heads of homes and tribes. That's where the emphasis was at the end of Joshua's ministry. And as we mentioned, there was no uh, no leader selected to, uh, to succeed Joshua. And so adherence to the covenant law was to begin with individuals, families, tribes. And it's worth noting too, if you guys want to turn over to Judges chapter two, that's where we're going to go next. It's worth noting that even the, you know, because we're going to look and see that when Joshua died, things kind of started to fall apart. And, you know, the death of Joshua and even the death of Moses, the death of the leaders in Israel, they still testify to the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. As glorious as the Old Covenant was, as essential as it was, um, it was not sufficient ultimately. And, you know, in Hebrews, it talks about how the high priests would not be able to continue their ministry forever because they died. And so someone else has to succeed them. But now with Christ in the resurrection, we have a permanent priest who lives forever. The same principle holds true to judges and deliverers and leaders of the people that you'd have a leader and he would rule for a long time or for a certain period. But eventually he would die and then somebody else would have to succeed him. And it showed the... The, the insufficient nature of the old covenant because what you ideally want is that one leader who's going to continue in that office forever, which ultimately you only find in the new covenant with Christ. And so uh, with Joshua's death, that becomes the occasion or the, the, the trigger, I guess, of a lot of rebellion in the land of Israel. So if you look at... Um, Judges 2, beginning in verse 10. And one other thing to mention, too. Joshua, he served faithfully. He you know, did what he was called to do. He defeated the enemies and brought the people into the land. He didn't do it finally and fully, again, because he couldn't continue due to death. Um, and so the work remained unfinished. Unlike now, we have a king who conquers and will continue to conquer until every enemy is subdued. Um, But Judges 2, beginning in verse 10, we read this. After the death of Joshua, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies whenever they marched out. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of all their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So what you have here is this pattern of disobedience, of covenant unfaithfulness on the part of Israel after Joshua's ministry. In verse 10, where it says that there arose a generation who did not know the Lord, and at the end of Joshua's ministry, he put the emphasis on fathers and tribal heads to lead their people in obedience that verse 10 that this generation arose not knowing the lord indicates a great failure on the part of the people who have been given authority to lead israel in obedience the fathers the tribal heads they clearly failed in their responsibility and so that led to um the people quickly falling away. And then the fact here and the problem that persists throughout Judges is that there's no clear authority in Israel. There's no, uh, the, there's not this one single leader. There's not a covenant head. There's not that authority who will lead the people in obedience. Um, and so instead, what you have in Israel, rather than kind of unified obedience, you have rebellion, you have fragmentation, and then ultimately, of course, you have judgment. And again and again, um, this this continues. The cycle continues in Israel. The people are living not as a nation, but rather still as, you know, just a people kind of loosely gathered together. And being oppressed by the surrounding nations was clear covenant judgment. We're told in verse 15 of Judges 2 that the hand of the Lord was against them as he had warned and as he had sworn to them. This is part of the covenant arrangement that there are, remember we talked about, sanctions put on the covenant. So if the if the law of the covenant, the precepts of the covenant are disobeyed, then sanctions come into play the 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 curses of the covenant begin to come upon the people and one of those would be oppression by their enemies that surrounded them and so it's very clear that what's going on here is judgment from god due to covenant unfaithfulness then of course we're given um god's temporary answer to this pattern of disobedience and that was to appoint these judges who were you know, of course, as we see throughout the book, flawed men and one woman um, who were nevertheless empowered by the spirit of God to fight and defeat the enemies in a way that was reminiscent of Moses and Joshua who had received the spirit of God to equip them. And so although, you know, the judges, they, you know, get a really bad rap and, you know, some of it's, of course, deserved, but they are, they're still God's raised up, appointed deliverers, filled with his spirit and equipped to um, rescue the people. And yet, even throughout this period with the judges, um, their ministry is sporadic, it's inconsistent, and it's very localized, especially. It's not nationalized. You're still lacking this principle of the the covenant head that's anticipated in the law in Deuteronomy 17 that we read. Um, you know, there's no succession principle. There's no, you know, ultimate authority in the nation. You know, at one point in the book of Judges, 
uh, the people try to make Gideon the king, but and you know then his sons after him, but he refuses the throne. And so you have this pattern throughout Judges where again it's sporadic, it's inconsistent, it's localized, and it's just Judges is a chaotic book. There's no other way to put it uh, because it was a chaotic situation for the people of Israel because they didn't have a king, they didn't have a head. There was no clear ultimate authority to rule over them. And part of God's purposes in this to allow for this period of chaos and rebellion and deliverance and all the rest is to illustrate uh, the need for the kingdom to be gathered under one head. It shows that this is what happens when there's not that centralized authority for the people, where there's not that one man representing the people to God and God to the people, that it leads to this kind of chaos. Um, and so it shows the, you know, the, that Israel ought to be gathered under that head. The old covenant the law of Moses, it anticipated a righteous king who would bring the, the people, the nation, to consummation, to its rest. Because if you look at the book of Judges, there's no rest there. There's no rest from the enemy or anything like that. Um, you guys good? Any comments? I just say, again, in all this, it just shows our depravity when, when we are left to ourselves and mm-hmm. doing what, what seems right in our own eyes. And when those restraints are lifting, apart from that king, that ruler, that authority, the one who subdues us, the one who rules over us, defends us, but also God's grace in the midst of that to raise up. And I love in this passage that you read, Luke, that whenever he raised up the judge for them, the Lord was with them, obviously, the power from them. He saved them from the hand of the enemies. All the days of the judge's life, the Lord was moved with pity by the groaning because of those those who afflicted and oppressed them. So here are the people so guilty, so sinful, and yet, as they call upon the Lord, his grace is sufficient. They don't deserve that, that kind of grace. So there's still that undeserving mm-hmm. nature of the, that, under, that underlines all this, but really, obviously, ends up pointing to that need of that, like Luke is teaching us. That, that head, that supreme mm-hmm. king. Right. It shows, it emphasizes the need for that one to lead in righteousness. Um, you know, because the people had the law. They had the law from Moses, but the law by itself was not sufficient to govern them. They needed the righteous king who would who would model and enforce the law. That's what they were lacking in Israel during this time. One who would lead by example and who would execute justice. That's the need that's clearly perceived in the book of Judges. And when you don't have that, look what's happening like even today. You know, and I mean, I'm not trying to make a direct comparison to the theocracy of Israel, but even in nations where our laws are really foundationally based on these kinds of principles. When that goes, look what happens. And mm-hmm. it's kind of, we're almost like in the days of judges right now, it seems. <laughs> Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And, right. Thing, but. Right. Um, and so, from, really from the period of Joshua's death until the, um, the, the ascent of David, the the whole in-between period is kind of this frantic search for national leadership in Israel. That question of who is the king, because the king is promised, the king is anticipated, and yet there's no king. And that's kind of the whole question. This is something, you know, I mean, you guys know, you know, so much of this class is based on, you know, books, but this in particular is something that makes dad has really helped me in understanding with this period of judges until David is it's this search for the king in Israel. And so we know from the beginning with Abraham, part of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham was that kings would come from him, that among Abraham's offspring, there would be kings. And so then with Jacob, as he's blessing his 12 sons, he prophesies and blesses Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So that promise that was made broadly to Abraham and his offspring for kings to come from him now at the end of Genesis is focused on the tribe of Judah. So you have, you know, that's that's the royal line. The king is going to come from Judah. And yet, what do you have throughout the history of Israel? You know, Moses is a Levite. 
Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. And even throughout the book of Judges, there's very, very little heard about Judah. Um, there's you know, one minor judge that came that's mentioned that was from the tribe of Judah. He has like one brief sentence about him in the book of Judges. Um, he is, however, from Bethlehem, it's specified, and Bethlehem begins to play a very prominent role towards the end of the book of Judges. If you guys actually would turn to Judges chapter 19, so it's an extremely chaotic book, it's a chaotic period of history, and it concludes with this extremely gruesome, grisly, disturbing account that kind of punctuates the chaos of this period. Um, and also, in a way, this section, this end, this ending uh, pericope of the book anticipates the dysfunction that is to come when Israel finally does appoint its very first king. And so what you have in um, chapters 19 through 21 at the end of Judges is a story about a Levite and his concubine who are first in the land of Judah and specifically in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, that's where this uh, woman's father is, and he shows them great, incredible hospitality, which, you know, kind of throughout Scripture you see this, um, even with Abraham and the angels who visited him, up through the New Testament and the calls for hospitality. Hospitality is consistently a mark of godliness and um you know, Christ-likeness. Um, and so you, you see that illustrated or, or demonstrated in Bethlehem by this man um, who brings the, the Levite and his concubine into his home, shows them this incredible hospitality. And then the Levite and his concubine go to into the tribe of Benjamin, where there is this horrific crime and violation. And we're going to read Judges 19, Verses 22-30. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where his master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way. And behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or has been seen from the day of the, that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So, again, a lot there. and We're not going to get into all the details of that account. But what I want to emphasize for us tonight, so you have this contrast of the kind of hospitality that this man and his concubine experienced in Bethlehem and Judah, then they go over to Benjamin, and we have this horrific account of what happened, and when you read this, it, parts of it almost read exactly like Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, and what happened there, which led to the raining down of fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah for the great sin. They're very, very similar in the way that the narrative plays out. And that indicates that the tribe of Benjamin, where this happened and that allowed this crime to take place, really should have suffered 
the kind of judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered, the kind of disinheritance, this you know, horrific violation of the law should have led to their disinheritance. And that was going to be what happened because after this, all the other tribes of Israel come together and they say, we're not going to intermarry with the tribe of Benjamin. They're going to be cut off and ultimately they're going to let Benjamin die out. But instead, um, the in, in, in I believe an unjust way, there's a restoration of the people of Benjamin. They're brought back into the fold with Israel um, as a part of the nation. And, and so you don't have, what's very clear in this account is the lack of that corporate head to execute true justice, to make sure that justice is enforced. Instead, you have this horrible sin. It leads to kind of a civil war. But ultimately, the people of Benjamin are restored into the covenant community, even though they you know, probably shouldn't have been. And the book of Judges then ends, is punctuated with that statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Throughout the book of Judges, you have lawlessness that comes from kinglessness. And this last horrific episode is kind of the, you know, the chief example of what happens when there's no righteous leadership in the covenant. And so the book ends there. We get into the book of Ruth. And again, not to get into it deeply, but once again, in Ruth, you have Bethlehem cropping up as a significant place. It's highlighted. Boaz ends up playing the part of the redeemer of this foreign woman, Boaz of the tribe of Judah in the city of Bethlehem. And so all throughout, you're kind of getting some of these hints that are highlighting Bethlehem as a significant city and kind of a hint of where the people are to look uh, for the king who would eventually come. But in spite of all this, and in spite of the fact that Benjamin was in many ways sort of an illegitimate tribe, the first king of Israel is Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And again, that should tell you something with the way that the book of Judges ends, and then all of a sudden you have the first king of Israel is from Benjamin. That should be red flags to the people. First of all, the king is supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. Secondly, Benjamin is you know, sort of this outcast tribe. Um, turn over to First King, or I'm sorry, First Samuel, chapter eight, and we'll get the account of Israel appointing their first king. So, First Samuel chapter eight, beginning in verse four. We read that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain from and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in the day that you cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, 
There shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So here's where some of the confusion comes in because, again, it seems, okay, in Deuteronomy, God says when the people want a king, you should give them a king. But now here in 1 Samuel, the people ask for a king and they're warned, you know, that you know, we're told that they have rejected God as being their king and saying they want one. So the rebellion of the people here, it's not in demanding a king. As we saw from Deuteronomy, that was good and proper. But their rebellion was in their rejection of God, of his way, and of his law. They didn't want a king who was going to rule the way that God had commanded him to rule. They wanted a king who was going to be like the kings of all the other nations around them. It wasn't that they wanted a king, but it's that they wanted a king who would be like the nations. And that's what the whole period of the judges indicated, is that Israel, they had their continued rebellion, their continued rejection of God, their continued devotion to idols, just like God said to Samuel. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt, they've been going after idols, they've been rejecting me, they've been going against me. Um, And so their desire, even after all that period of the judges, was still not the man whom God would choose, but the one whom they would choose, who would be like all the other kings and all the other nations. A king who would judge according to his own law and not according to God's law. A king who would fight their battles by you know, his own standards and his own strengths instead of uh, according to God's rules, God's strength, and reliance upon the Lord. And so... As Samuel indicates in that warning that the king, like the nations, if that's what they wanted, a king who wasn't going to rule according to God's law, the result would be them being slaves. That he was going to take from them, he was going to take great liberties with them, he was going to uh, send them out into battles, take their sons, take their young men, take their daughters, their servants. A king like the nations was not going to rule and defend and judge on behalf of God, but he was going to seek to replace God. He wasn't going to try to represent God, but he would try to replace God. That's what the king, like the nations, would do. And he would take, uh, he would presume to take that which belonged to God. You even have that indicated in that the king is going to take the tithe. He's going to take 10% of your sheep and 10% of your, uh, your grain That's what was supposed to belong to God, and God was saying, warning that a king like the nations is going to seek to replace God, and it's going to show because he's going to take what belongs to God. And so um, the, the very fact that the king was supposed to be from Judah, but that God selected a king from Benjamin, because it's very clear in the narrative of 1 Samuel, Saul was chosen by God very explicitly, The fact that God chose a man from Benjamin to be the king should have showed the people of Israel that this was, in fact, judgment against them. Saul is judgment against the people of Israel. And just like the people, Saul disregards God's law. He ignores God's prophets. And so he leads the kingdom not into rest, but into conflict and into disaster after disaster. You, is, that because, and that, and is that because they were breaking covenant, right? right? People were breaking the covenant by not waiting on God to or looking for right. God's appointed king, but wanting one, like their desire was for, to have one like the nations around them instead of right. looking vertically instead of horizontal. Right, their heart desire was for a king like the nations. It wasn't, their heart was not going after God's law. And like in the period of the judges, they were disobeying and disregarding the law. And so, yes, the people break covenant, and so God brings his judgment. And instead of the judgment being only in the form of foreign nations coming, and then God would raise up a deliverer to save them, instead he's raising up judgment from within Israel in King Saul. And did most of the kings really break all those um, stipulations that the God had that, that the Lord made for them like you shall not gather many horses yes mm-hmm. chariots or like with Solomon the wise like all the kings who broke covenant or yeah like explicitly breaking God's commands as the king not writing down the law or mm-hmm. anything like that so yeah yep and we're gonna see that as we get along into Israel the 
you know, that leads to the judgment and exile of the people of Israel. Um, so you have the, uh, you know, the, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, it anticipated a king who was going to bring the people into that consummated rest. But with Saul and his reign, you have anything but rest coming from that. Um, and then so ultimately, after persistent and unrepentant obedience or disobedience from Saul, God removes Saul from the kingship. We get that in 1 Samuel 15. You can check that out. Um, God rips the kingdom away from Saul. And um, the, that removal of Saul was then intended to make way for God's true king. The, um, you know, putting the people through that tumultuous reign of Saul, like the judges, was to prepare them to receive God's man, the man whom God would appoint to sit on the throne. But, you know, if you guys want to start turning over then to 1 Samuel chapter 16, because this question still persists, even into the reign of Saul, where they have a king, the question remains, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, goes to the house of Jesse, and still there's that question, who is the king to be? So in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So you have... Finally, God, that was 1 Samuel 16, verses 10 through 13. So you have God explicitly and particularly choosing the Judean shepherd from Bethlehem to be the king, David, the son of Jesse. He's anointed and he's raised up to be king. And right after this, we see God's spirit departing from Saul. So that spirit that equipped Moses and Joshua and the judges, and which had equipped Saul for a season, departed from Saul and went on to David, and the spirit remained on David. And as we talk next week about the covenant that God makes with David, God promises that he's not going to remove his spirit from David um, to, to, do the, to do the work of the king. And so Saul, on the one side, is disinherited, in a sense, the spirit departs from him. He is removed from the office of the king. He suffers judgment. And it's even indicated in Saul's own household how there's a recognition that Saul has become the illegitimate king and that David is the rightful king. Jonathan's own son, or I'm sorry, Saul's own son, Jonathan, recognizes, you know, it's an amazing thing. Jonathan is the heir apparent. Jonathan is in line for the throne, and he recognizes that God has appointed a different king, a different house to rule over Israel. And so you have this episode later in 1 Samuel where Jonathan takes his robes and takes his, uh, you know, his, um, his armor and puts it on David, indicating the transfer of the inheritance from Jonathan to David, that David is the rightful heir to the throne. So even Saul's own household recognizes the judgment of God on him, that he is not the true king. David is the true king. Jonathan surrenders his birthright to David, as it were. And yet, throughout the remainder of Saul's life, you have David, the rightful king, in obedience to God's law, in submission to God, serves Saul, reveres the office, and refuses to take matters into his own hands and dispatch of Saul himself and take the throne by force. And so you have this amazing, in the you know second half of 1 Samuel, this amazing contrast between Saul, who is you know, unjustly persecuting David, seeking to murder David consistently, while David is obeying God, is walking in righteousness, is revering the office of the kingship, 
Um, and, and serving faithfully in that way, David consistently is seen as a man of strength, integrity, righteousness, courage, faithfulness to God. He is a, a true leader who really is reminiscent of Moses and who is really forward-looking, of course, to Christ. And so you have very clearly David is the man whom God appoints as the head of the kingdom of Israel, the covenant head of the kingdom of Israel, who is going to be commissioned to defend, to protect, to lead, and to deliver the people into the consummate rest of the old covenant. And that's what we're going to talk about next week with the covenant that God makes with David and his house and the consummation of the Old Covenant under David and Solomon. Uh, do you guys have any questions or comments? Real quick, just to go back to a little yeah. bit. Um, with the example set of God giving Saul as the, as the first king, is that the beginning of like the scriptural precedent or example for God expressing judgment on wicked nations by giving them over to wicked kings? Um, uh, yeah, I guess biblically that would be kind of the, you know, first explicit example of that, because absolutely we know that, yeah, to be given over to unjust, wicked rulers is a judgment of God on a rebellious people. Because it was their desire to have king like the nations. Exactly. We want that, not what you have, but they're like, we want to be like that. Right. Like so yeah, I would say absolutely that Saul kind of does embody that principle of the people being given over in judgment to an unrighteous, wicked ruler. The people getting what they deserve. Um, in fact, I was just um, not long ago talking to Meg's dad about this, and he was pointing out that in Hebrew, Saul means you know something like you asked for it. Yeah. Like that is. What, you know, so that's the indication. Again, it should have been the signs were there, the tribe of Benjamin, all of that. Well, that's really should good. Have that was indicated. very insightful. I had not known that about the, the, what you pointed out, the tribe of Benjamin and their horrific act. And, you know, God saying, this is what your guy's going to be. That's a real indication that he's not the man that, that I'm bringing up. That, and also really the connection back to Abraham to Genesis 17, I think. He says, kings will come from you, mm -hmm. and with Judah, and then to, to David, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that cup, the covenant yes, of God. Yes, Jesus. Yes, exactly, but that, that covenant of God is unfolding despite our sinfulness and our right. rebellion. And that's, yeah, the amazing thing about the period of Judges and everything we were talking about tonight is that, again, corporately, the, you know, God took that oath when he passed through the split animal pieces that he was yeah. going to bring to pass all those promises he had made to Abraham. But individually and generationally, the people suffered judgment. They didn't realize it. They didn't enjoy those blessings. You would have, you know, individuals, families, tribes who would be disinherited. Ultimately, the nation itself would be disinherited. But God still, in spite of that, by his grace and because he took that covenant oath where he said, I will suffer the sanctions if I fail to deliver. He still fulfills all of his purpose with Abraham's offspring until he finally brings the, uh, you know, the, the blessing to the nations into the world. Because um, that's really where this ends up going. Like I said, we're going to talk a lot about kind of how that expectation of the Messiah began to take greater shape throughout Israel's history. And then, you know, finally, with Christ coming into the world, all of the old covenant comes to its fulfillment. And, and, it's, the new and it's so lives. cool, because even how exemplary David is in some ways, especially yeah. with Saul, he's still a man and susceptible to sin. So he's not, he points to Christ, obviously, but he's not the perfect king. Yeah. He's only a shadow of that. He's still a man used by God, but... Yeah, because yeah. I'm always amazed, like, why he just didn't waste Saul <laughs> when he had the chances. And even after after Saul died, that when, um, um, oh, I forget who, the, the, the man that came the back messenger. and reported, the messenger, he killed him. And then later, in 2 Samuel, there were two other men 
who killed people in the line of Saul. Mm -hmm. And they were executed by David, too, because Saul was still God's anointed. He still right. was chosen. He respected the office that much. Yes. And that's, you know, um, real integrity and, and difficult yeah. to do. And but. that reverence for God and his providence. Yeah. Even if you look at the contrast with the people of Israel who were impatient in waiting on God to put his man on the throne, you see David with that excellent patience, trusting that God had anointed him king. He had promised him the throne. And so David, even in exile, even living among the Philistines, he's trusting in that promise that God made at his anointing that he would uh, attain the throne. Uh, anything else? All right, let's pray, guys. Father, thank you again for your word and for this time with one another. Lord, we are just so amazed. And one of the one of the remarkable things about studying scripture in this way is to see your amazing wisdom, Lord. And we can exclaim with the apostle that how, uh, how unsearchable are your ways, how inscrutable are your judgments, Lord God, that you have worked far beyond our capacity to understand. You have woven together this incredible narrative of history and you are bringing it to its final consummation in Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would learn to trust in you better, that we would learn like David to have integrity and patience under trial and to believe, Lord, that even if every indication seems to be against it, that you are bringing about your purposes, that you are going to give us everything you've promised us because it has been secured for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we have a righteous king, a true king who is ascended and reigns from heaven and who lives forever. Lord, I pray that we would walk as faithful citizens of his kingdom, as faithful as faithful members of his covenant, Lord God, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the name of your king, which you have given to us, as sons of the Most High. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and use us mightily for the advance of the name, the glory, and the kingdom of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.